welcome and welcome back to an Easter edition of God's Proof Podcast here in San Antonio, Texas. I'm your host, Michael Austin Winchester. I'm recording late here on Sunday night, so you're probably not even going to hear this. It may not even be posted until after Resurrection Sunday, but I want you to know he is risen, he is alive, and the tomb is empty. And I've been teasing it for a little while now, so it's no secret if you've been following along that we're going to be talking about the resurrection next season on this podcast. His resurrection and claim as Messiah, our Christ, is our foundation. It's what every Christian's faith is based on. Without the resurrection, Jesus goes down in history as a delusional narcissist with a God complex or even worse, a liar, and completely contradictory to his teaching and to the truth claims he made during his ministry. And even if his teachings made it out of the first century, and and that's a big if, because how much would the world care to keep the accounts of a dead Jewish carpenter who only taught for a little over three years and didn't travel more than 400 miles from where he was born during his ministry? Even if we had his teachings and he didn't resurrect from the dead, then we'd throw him in with all the other dead ancient philosophers we learn about in World Civ. So I want to start by acknowledging the significance of Resurrection Sunday and by thanking all the listeners who took a step and entered a church today. So I hope you all had a great experience, but that's about where we're going to stop talking about the resurrection for this episode at least. So I'm going to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger until we get to the next season. And that's because we've still got a good amount to talk about this season in our investigation of who or what caused the universe in the first place. And speaking of dead philosophers we learn about in World Civ, I want to introduce our next topic with a quote by French philosopher René Descartes. I think, therefore I am. I'm going to say that again. I think therefore I am. A clearer translation of this is probably, I am thinking, therefore I exist. And I think this is a good quote to start out with because over the next few episodes, we're going to be talking about non-material thought, our non-physical identities. And this is a very important aspect we need to analyze in our investigation because in order to hold a naturalist worldview, our thoughts and identities have to be explained purely by the laws of physics and chemistry. Philosopher Edward Fieser, in his book, Philosophy of the Mind, put it this way, If you hold a naturalist worldview, there is no such thing as non-material substance, or soul, or spirit, nor any aspect of human nature that evades explanation in purely physical terms. The mind is entirely material in terms of this worldview. And that's consistent with this worldview because otherwise, how would a non-material mind, soul, or spirit come from purely physical matter, right? I mean, we just finished our episodes on biology for this season, and what I want to separate is the life we talked about emerging in those two episodes from our consciousness, Why are we not just living life like robots with no real thought in nature, right? Philosopher David Chalmers, in his book, The Conscious Mind, says conscious experience is at once the most familiar thing in the world and the most mysterious. 
There is nothing we know more about directly than consciousness, but it is far from clear how to reconcile it with everything else we know. Why does it exist? What does it do? How could it possibly arise from lumpy gray matter? So the question is, are our minds exactly the same as our physical brains? There's a law of logic called the law of identity, and it's expressed as A is equal to A. In other words, if two things share every characteristic, they are the same thing. A equals A. So to answer the question, is the mind identical to the brain? We simply have to look at the evidence and the properties of the brain and the mind. And if they're exactly the same, we can say that they have an identity relationship. We can say that A equals A. Otherwise, there have to be explanations within the universe to account for why they're different. So close your eyes for just a minute. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. So I want you to imagine with me your dream house. And you can imagine absolutely anything associated with this dream house, even features and technology that hasn't even been invented yet. If you get creative with it, no other house on earth would be exactly identical to it. And with your eyes closed, you aren't physically looking out optically at a house and just describing its features back. Yet you imagined how many floors it has, the color, the style, the flooring, the backyard, the countertops, and this house only exists in your thoughts. Brain surgeons can't open up your brain and find the house that you imagined. They can probably tell you a location in the brain where neurological activity is taking place, but when you're thinking of that house, that only shows a causal relationship between two separate things. And that's because mental states are private and physical states are public. Physical states are able to be accessed. Mental states are not. Mental states can also be separated from physical states in that thoughts are generally about the physical world around us rather than about themselves. Philosophers call this intentionality. So if you have a mental state of fear or worry or hope, those thoughts rely on the existence of another thing. For example, if you're driving and all of a sudden you run into a patch of really bad weather. I used to live in Florida and this would happen all the time. And maybe in this scenario, you've had trouble with your windshield wipers working properly in recent days. Well, your thoughts and your worries are going to be about the physical state of the storm and your windshield wipers. Whereas your windshield wipers aren't thinking about something else. They are just windshield wipers. It's the same with your brain. Your brain simply is a physical brain. Your thoughts and your mind are about something else. We can also be incorrect about something we're contemplating in the moment. Last week, my wife and I were at home and I fell asleep on the couch, but when I woke up, it was dead silent in our apartment. And usually you can hear if someone's in the apartment because it's rather small and our dog is usually walking around and trying to get us to play with him, but it was dead silent this time. And I thought it was weird because Grace usually tells me if she's leaving and she didn't say anything beforehand, but I didn't have a text saying she took our dog for a walk or anything like that. 
So I was for sure I was by myself in our apartment. So I called her and she had her phone on silent so I didn't even hear her pick up. But all of a sudden I hear her voice in the dining room five feet away from me. And from my position, I couldn't see her or the dog laying down beneath her. So it shocked me for a second. But here's the point. I can be wrong about a physical entity like my wife being in the apartment. But what I believe about my belief and the thought that I'm home alone is undeniable. So we can say, hey, you're wrong. Your wife is in the other room. But you can't say, hey, there's no thought of you being home alone in your mind. So you can be wrong about physical entities, but mental states are undeniable. Another difference, mental states are subjective, while physical states are objective. In other words, mental states are personal. Physical states are impersonal. Think back to your experiences training for a new job. My first job out of college was a very forward-facing sales-type position. So your first week, your coworkers and bosses are literally throwing everything at you. New terminology, processes, rules, regulations, all that. We even did a lot of role-playing to try to simulate phone and face-to-face -face interactions. So you study every last thing. You've got your script down, and through all the training and preparation you've done, there's still no substitute for doing the real job. And that's because you're still adding new knowledge through your own subjective personal experiences and feelings. So taking this analogy over to the brain and to the mind, the brain is like the training you received at that new job. We can explain physical aspects of the brain objectively and impersonally. The mind is subjective, like the actual experience of doing the job. All the experiences and feelings you have are personal and exclusive. So by this very nature, they're not able to be described objectively. And then for the final piece of evidence we'll go over today, our brains are measurable and our mental states are not. This is fairly simple, but Physical states like brains can be weighed, measured for mass, their length and their width, and assessed by the laws of physics and chemistry. But your desires, your emotions, your thoughts, any mental state cannot be measured. So just to recap, your brain is able to be accessed. Your mind is not. Your brain simply is a brain. Your thoughts are about something else. You can be wrong in your assumptions about physical entities, whereas mental entities, what you believe about your belief, is undeniable. Your brain is objective and impersonal, whereas your mind is subjective and personal. And your brain is measurable, while your mind is not. So we can describe a brain with physics, we cannot describe a mind with physics. And according to naturalists, nothing outside of our material universe is capable of causing things to happen inside our physical universe. So our non-material minds shouldn't be able to influence our physical bodies. But we all know that's not true through our own experiences as conscious human beings. So after the break, we'll dive into the explanations given for the existence, or at the very least, the appearance of a non-material mind.
so the first naturalist explanation I want to go over this week is just simply that mental states are brain states, that A equals A. The brain and the mind are one and the same. So when we experience mental states like anger or joy, it's nothing more than physical processes in the brain according to this explanation. So obviously this ignores all the evidential differences we just went over, but it also generalizes mental states like anger and joy that we just mentioned. And the problem with that is that these states aren't observed in the same way in each person. When my wife is angry, she gets really quiet. But when I'm angry, I want to argue. This view can't account for that. But this view is also logically contradictory. In order to rationally come to the conclusion that mental states and brain states are the same, you have to have the free will to do that. But that's not possible purely based on the laws of physics and chemistry. So freely believing that their thoughts are purely physical processes is actually evidence that their thoughts aren't purely physical. Another proposal is that mental states are expressions of behavior, and this is called behaviorism. So using the anger example in the last explanation, when I describe myself as being angry, I'm actually just talking about my behavior of being argumentative rather than the thoughts I'm thinking. Of course, almost all of us know through our own personal experience that our actions are the result of our thoughts rather than the other way around. But this view ignores those personal experiences of consciousness. But even more so, not all emotions we experience result in a behavior. And this view fails in accounting for self-control. If you've ever been to a haunted house, you know this feeling, right? Someone jumps out, you're emotionally surprised, and then you control yourself from punching them in the face, right? So behaviorism doesn't account for our experiences with consciousness. The next idea brought forward by some philosophers is called machine state functionalism. According to this idea, our brains are physical machines that come pre-programmed with instructions on how to react when we experience stimulation from our external circumstances. So our mental states are a product of this pre-programmed algorithm that determines how we're going to react. And we can see with the recent updates to artificial intelligence, and I even think about the new chat GPT apps out now that computers can generate responses with the appearance of understanding, but they do that without true comprehension. And appearance and reality are two separate things. It's also an inconsistent argument because you're arguing against a designer by pointing to complex computer programming that's been designed, right? I mean, we saw a lot of that in the last episode on biology, but here's another problem. Two people can respond exactly the same way to a situation, even though their mental states, like their past experiences, current emotions, and thoughts, are completely different. And that's not possible with operating systems like Windows or Apple. So even though humans share a common operating system, right, our brain, we don't share thoughts, experiences, emotions, or responses to external circumstances and stimulation. So this idea isn't supported by our personal experiences with conscious thought. There's also a view called eliminative materialism. This view holds that 
Our mental states are really just the product of language we invented to describe the activity in our brains, but that the language is outdated and needs to be updated. I bet you can already see where the goalposts are moving on this one. If we just change our language, if we just change our definitions, we can make reality what we want it to be, right? This argument fails again because it ignores our personal experiences, but it also contradicts itself. People who hold this view believe and make a truth claim about mental states, and the truth claim is that they don't exist. But how can you have a belief about something unless a mental state is non-physical? We just went over that in our evidence breakdown. Mental states are beliefs about something. Physical states just are. So it breaks down the more you look at it. So that leads us to one final explanation, and that explanation is dualism. Dualism separates mind and matter. There are physical states and there are mental states. They're different and they coexist together. Many naturalists are unwilling to accept this position because if they do, then it's an acceptance that something non-material and therefore not bound by physical laws and naturalism breaks down. Naturalist philosopher Thomas Nagel, in his book Mind and Cosmos, admits that so long as the mental is irreducible to the physical, the appearance of conscious physical organisms is left unexplained by a naturalist account of the familiar type. On a purely materialist understanding of biology, consciousness would have to be regarded as a tremendous and inexplicable fact about the world. Still, some people reject the view and will cite people who lose mental function when they suffer from brain damage and dementia. Dualist neurosurgeons believe the loss of memory could be the damaged brain's inability to access the undamaged mind. It's like when you have a damaged Wi-Fi router. The undamaged modem isn't going to perform its function, is it? The two are separate, but they coexist. When you look at the evidence and explanations side by side, it's clear that the argument that doesn't contradict or disregard personal conscious experience is dualism. So what's the point? What's all this leading to? Well, if we are more than physics and chemistry, if we are more than just stardust and natural laws, we just might reasonably conclude that we can survive the deaths of our physical bodies because the non-material mind is outside of our scientific understanding of a material universe. And it's a reasonable conclusion in terms of our investigation that if we have a non-material mind, that it would come from an external cause for our universe, a cause that is not bound by space, time, or matter a cause that is eternal, a cause that is powerful enough to cause the universe in the first place, a cause that is intentional enough to create a universe fine-tuned for life to live, a cause that is intelligent and ready to communicate, a cause that is inventive and creative, and now we add a cause that has a conscious mind. As always, Subscribe and rate this podcast five stars, and in your review, go ahead and throw in a question for a chance to have it answered in a coming episode. I also want to point you again to Jay Warner Wallace's God's Crime Scene book. 
It's a great resource that covers a lot of the topics we're going to be going over this season, and it's less than $20 on Amazon. Mr. Wallace used to be a naturalist just like myself, and I just think his books are well worth it. So I've already posted a link to that book in the show notes. Until next time, this has been God's Proof Podcast.